read a verse in Romans chapter 11. You know that to grow healthy physically we need a balanced diet. It's the same spiritually. And a lot of problems among Christians come because they have certain favorite themes or subjects in the scripture which they go to often favorite verses and um, think only of those the result is an imbalance in their life problems in fact most of the cults in christendom have arisen through some one verse or one side of truth magnified out of all proportion <clears throat> if you look at most of the cults that use the bible as their base and basis you'll find that um, they use a scripture but blow it out of proportion to everything else in scripture and then of course you get a wrong doctrine can you get a wrong doctrine from scripture yes you can the devil quoted scripture to jesus and that was wrong jesus countered it by saying it is also written and then you get the whole truth so here in romans 11 and verse 22 it says behold the kindness and the severity of god behold is a word which means look carefully look carefully at god's kindness and his severity and um you know how our natural tendency is only to look at his kindness because that comforts us more and if you are discouraged that's certainly something you need to look at because he is infinitely kind his mercies are new every morning but if you keep on looking at that and you don't see anything about god's severity i feel that you may come to the place where you could lose your salvation I personally no doubt in my own mind about that because when a person doesn't understand the severity of God he plays around with sin and uh, he just keeps on meditating on God's kindness and uh, the end result is he's lost he may have been once saved but he finally goes to hell forever um so it's very important that we when we think of the grace of God That's not the only thing mentioned in the New Testament. The New Testament also speaks about the fear of God or reverence for God. So if the grace of God is balanced with your understanding of the reverence of God or the fear of God, then you have a balanced development. How do we become holy? Romans chapter 6 verse 14 says sin shall not rule over you or be your master when you are under grace so you can't become holy without the grace of god grace is god's power that helps us to overcome sin that helps us to overcome our fallen nature and grace is the power that keeps us from falling but the bible also says in second corinthians 7 and verse 1 that If you want to perfect holiness you can do that 
only in the fear of God. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So, I understand from that verse, you just can't become holy if you don't fear God. However much you may experience grace, if you don't fear God, you're not going to be holy. You've got to understand God's grace and you've got to understand God's fear. Um, it also says in Hebrews and chapter 12, um, there are verses about the fear of God in the Old Testament, but we could say, well, that was something which they concentrated on the Old Covenant because they didn't know the grace of God then. It's true. They did not know the grace of God then. They only knew the fear of God and the law. But when Jesus came, he added grace. He didn't substitute the fear of God with now his grace. He added something. And that's what a lot of people haven't understood. Most Christians haven't understood that. They think that Jesus substituted the fear of God now with the grace of God. And that's all we need to think about. And that's why the reason why most Christians, their lives are so shallow. They are defeated by sins in their personal life, family life, church life. Because they haven't got a balanced diet. So Hebrews chapter 12, it says... Uh, it speaks about the time when God's going to remove everything that can be shaken. Um, it says here in verse 27, the last section of Hebrews 12, yet once more denotes that the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so those things which cannot be shaken may remain. So, one day God's going to shake everything that can be shaken. And if your life can be shaken, it will be shaken and it will be removed. Because it says here, the removing of all things that can be shaken. I don't want to be removed. I want to live for eternity. And I don't want to be shaken. Jesus spoke about the house that will not be shaken. And so it says here about a time when even Almighty God, uh, when He shakes things, there are certain things that will not be shaken. Even when God shakes heaven and earth. It's amazing. And it says here, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken. The kingdom of God is something that cannot be shaken. And if I'm a part of that, let us show gratitude. If you want to be a part of this kingdom, gratitude is of course very important. Everything we do for God must be filled with gratitude and thankfulness. And by this gratitude... By grace, let's say. We offer to God an acceptable service with fear. You see how the two go together? With reverence and awe. Because our God is a consuming fire. It's a fire of love and it's a fire of purity. See, um, when I think of the early Christians, I'm talking about the early apostles, they were not very mature when they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And yet, uh, they didn't know all the doctrines that we know because the New Testament was not even written on the day of Pentecost. There are a lot of things you and I know about doctrine which Peter did not know probably till he was 50 or 60 years old. And yet, how is it that he lived in freedom from sin? Those early Christians. See, the reason was those early Christians were all from the Jewish community. And from childhood, 
they had been drilled by their parents and their leaders in the fear of God. They got to learn to fear God, fear God, fear God. They, they didn't know anything about the grace of God, but they were taught the fear of God and people like Peter and James and John for 25, 30 years, they had learned the fear of God. Then, they understood the grace of God. And that makes a lot of difference. Whereas today's Christians have come straight to the grace of God without even spending spend one year in learning the fear of God. And if I were to use an illustration, it's like going to college without going to school. You know, Galatians chapter 3 says that. Galatians 3 says, uh, in verse 24, the law which taught people the fear of God was a schoolmaster. It was not a college principal, it was a schoolmaster, a school principal. The law was the principle of a school to lead us to grace, to Christ. So here, He's comparing the Old Testament to a school education. And you enter the New Covenant in the Holy Spirit. It's like entering college. Now, can, can you imagine if a child is taken, hasn't even learned the ABC or addition or multiplication or anything, and the parent is very eager that he finishes his degree quickly and put him straight into college. I mean, he's five years old and he's sitting in a BSc class. How long do you think he'll sit there? All his life. And he learned nothing. Because he doesn't know the alphabet. You can't rush through education like that. That's why we are patient to send our children to school for 10-12 years. Before we even dream that they can go into college. The law was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. And that was the tremendous advantage that those early Jewish Christians had. You see, the non-Jewish Christians uh, didn't have that advantage, even in the first century. For example, in Corinth, most of those people in Corinth were, church in Corinth were all from Gentiles. And so you find all types of things going on in their midst. You imagine a man living with his father's wife, <laughs> sleeping with her. I can't imagine a person with a Jewish background ever doing that. And when I see the horrible things that I hear some believers do nowadays, I can't imagine Jewish Christians doing that. Or Jews doing that. God-fearing Jews. Can you imagine uh, Elijah, if he were living today, uh, sort of secretly clicking on internet pornography? Elijah, under the Old Covenant? Or can you imagine Moses or John the Baptist Pulling around with women or playing the fool with money, cheating. I can't. Because they knew nothing. Their knowledge of God's grace was zero. But their knowledge of God's fear was very large. And the Bible does not say that the grace of God is the beginning of wisdom. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's like saying the fear of the Lord is the ABC. The grace of God is not the ABC. So if you try to get the grace of God before you've learned your ABC, you're going to have a faulty understanding and 
probably all through your life. It will be like this child who was pushed into college. Somehow or the other it learns to struggle with learning the alphabet and everything else while it's attending this B.S.C. first year class. He's going to be a very poor student. Because he's got to learn 12 year stuff so, so quickly. So I want to say my brothers and sisters that we all need greatly to learn the fear of God. David used to tell people, come my children, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. It's one of the great things we need to learn. It says even about Jesus. You know, it's an amazing verse we read in Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, it says in verse 7, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his godly fear. Why were Jesus' prayers heard? The standard answer that all Christians, most Christians would give is he's the son of God. But that's not what the Holy Spirit says. The Holy Spirit says that there was no partiality with God and God did not treat Jesus any different when he came to earth as a man. He came to earth as a man and he lived as a man and he didn't get any special treatment. It's very important to remember, he didn't get any special treatment. What God did for Jesus, he'll do for you if you fulfill the same conditions. And Jesus learned the fear of God. And if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then it says in Luke chapter 2, the child grew in wisdom. In Nazareth. That means he must have grown in wisdom because he learned more and more the fear of God. And here it says his prayers were heard because of his godly fear. Imagine Jesus on earth who had never sinned, living in such godly fear. And that's the reason why he says he prayed with loud crying and tears. People who have a fear of God, there's a lot of loud crying in their prayer life. People who don't fear God, there's no such loud crying as a casual attitude to Jesus like a buddy-buddy, you know, put your arm around Jesus and say hi. These are the guys who've got no understanding of God at all. The more you know God, the less you think He's your buddy to put your arm around Him and say hi. The more you learn to worship Him. We have a shallow Christianity today which has lost that fear of God. It's a very, very sad thing. Look at the songs we sing very often nowadays, all these modern courses, some of them are excellent. But if you notice, many of them, the element of the fear of God is absolutely lacking. And some of them are so trivial. You've heard me mention this before, talk to Jesus as if he's some type of lover. Oh, I can't do without you, I can't live without you. And the word Jesus is not even mentioned in the song. You don't know who you're talking to. It's amazing. Written by people who have no fear of God, but got a, some ability in music. And there are multitudes of Christians who love singing them. Because they themselves have no fear of God. They don't know God. They know somebody who they think is Jesus. It's not the real Jesus at all. 
if in the first century people could be attached to another Jesus, do you think it's possible for people to be attached to another Jesus who's not the Jesus of the Bible? I think so. I think a lot of people are. And that Jesus cannot help anybody. He can't save people from their sin. The real Jesus saves people from their sin. That's the meaning of his name. The real Jesus baptizes people in the Holy Spirit and fire. He does that. But this other Jesus, you can pray and pray and pray to him. It's almost like praying to the prophets of Baal. Like praying to Baal, like the prophets of Baal did. No answer, no fire. So, here is the real Jesus, one who prayed with loud crying and tears because he feared. Now I want to ask you, dear brothers and sisters, when was the last time you prayed with loud crying, strong crying and tears? For anything. Jesus is praying here that spiritual death should not touch him. And spiritual didn't te- death didn't touch him for 33 and a half years. It's not talking about physical death here because Jesus never prayed to be saved from physical death. Never. <laughs> Even martyrs are bold to go to physical death. Why can Jesus be scared of that? The death he hated and avoided was spiritual death. Spiritual death means darkness, that which belongs to the devil. Jesus hated it. It just means the same thing as what it says earlier in Hebrews of he loved righteousness and hated iniquity. He hated iniquity means he hated spiritual death. But he came as a man and from that purity of heaven where there was no spiritual death into a slum called the earth full of spiritual death and he didn't want to be touched by it. It's something like if you were brought up in extremely clean surroundings and you suddenly went and lived in a slum and oh, you're all the time you're reacting to everything around you. I don't want to touch that and I don't want to sit here and I don't want to drink from that cup. Everything is so filthy and you're so careful because you've been brought up in such clean hygienic surroundings. That's exactly how Jesus felt. A person who's lived in that slum all his life, he's not bothered. He sits anywhere, eats anything, rolls around anywhere, and that's how a lot of Christians are. They have grown up in this slum called the earth where sin is all around, and that there's no desire to be saved from that. Oh, oh, Father, please save me from this, save me from this. All around I see this. He prayed and he prayed and he prayed, and spiritual death did not touch him. Because that was the proof of his godly fear. God hears such prayers. God really hears such prayers. I tell you this. I believe with all my heart that what God did for Jesus, he will do for you and me. If we have the same attitude towards spiritual death that he had. He prayed with loud crying and tears to be saved from spiritual death. And he was heard. For 33 and a half years, he was heard. It never touched him. But it wasn't automatic. He didn't have some type of Teflon, non-stick type of nature where sin couldn't stick. I wish it were like that for us, but it isn't. Sin sticks very quickly to us. We're not non-stick. There is no such Teflon. Where We have to resist it. We have to resist it. And Jesus resisted it. He himself came without any Teflon non-stick coating. He resisted it, resisted it constantly. I can imagine many nights Jesus would have been praying with loud crying and tears, like in Gethsemane. 
Because that was the most important thing. Just like people today cry out to God, Lord, give me a bigger house, give me a better car, and give me a beautiful wife, and give me this job and that job. That's how Jesus prayed to be saved from spiritual death. The only thing is these folks are praying for something different. Something earthly, like all the heathen pray for. What do you think all the prayers of all the non-Christian people in the world are? You think they're praying for holiness? Not one of them. They are also praying for better houses, bigger cars, and to become millionaires, etc. It's a great deception that that religion has come into Christianity today. And dumb Christians sit with open mouth and swallow that. It shows they don't have the fear of God. They haven't seen Jesus. There's another Jesus being proclaimed in Christendom today. I want to say to you, brothers and sisters, let's learn the fear of God if we are to go further. One more verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read, Paul is speaking about, um, you know, heaven and earth, and says we must all appear, verse 10, before the judgment seat of Christ. When you think of appearing before the judgment seat of Christ, do you have the same reaction? that Paul has when he thinks about that. Now here is a man who could say in verse 9, we have only one ambition, that is to please God. Paul's ambition was not to have a better house or a better means of transport. He, his ambition was to please God. He had one passion in life and he had no time for secondary ambitions. One passion in life, to please God. Second Corinthians 9, he says, and the interesting, 5, 9, and the interesting thing he says here is, whether I'm at home in heaven, or absent from heaven here on earth, it doesn't make a difference. When I get to heaven, my ambition will be to please God. I mean, we all know that. When we get there, that will be our ambition. But the wonderful thing he says is, here when I'm on earth, my ambition is no different. Absolutely no different. I mean, in heaven I'm not going to long for a bigger house or a better car. Well, I don't long for that even here on earth, Paul says. Isn't that great? He said, the same ambition I'm going to have for all eternity in heaven, I've got right now, because I've become a creature of eternity. I've been changed from a creature of time to a creature of eternity. I've been changed from a child of Adam to a child of God. And now my ambition is the same as Christ's. As Jesus Christ. I have the mind of Christ. How many Christians do you think have the mind of Christ today? Mind of Christ was not always longing for more money and more prosperity like we hear today. He was longing for more to please the Father in everything. That's, Paul had that mind of Christ. We have this ambition because we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, verse 10, so that everyone will be rewarded for his deeds done in the body, whether they are good or whether they are bad. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore, we know the fear of the Lord. And we are made manifest to God. This is God sees everything in me. And I know his fear. And we are not trying to, verse 12, commend ourselves to you. Paul had that attitude. He says, I couldn't care less what you fellows think about me. I live before God's face. And that's the thing that matters. Now I want to 
turn to an Old Testament example in Genesis in chapter 22. In Genesis chapter 22, this is a very interesting chapter because of two reasons. One, it's the first place in the Bible where, and in fact I think it's the only place in the Bible, well, you could count Hebrews 5, but here's the first place anyway, where God himself gives a certificate about somebody, he fears me. He gave that certificate about Job, and as we just read, the certificate about Jesus himself in Hebrews 5. The Lord said that about Job in Job chapter 1, but here in the first time in the Bible, someone is called a fearer of God is here in Genesis, where God himself gives that certificate, is in Genesis chapter 22, where God says, um, in verse 12, middle, Now I know that you fear God. My brothers and sisters, imagine if Almighty God could say that to you. Boy, I'd give anything in the world to get that certificate. All your degree certificates and doctorate certificates are trash compared to this certificate from God. Now I know that you fear me. I hope you're willing to give anything in the world to get that certificate from God. That's the first place in the Bible where the fear of God is where a person is spoken of as Fearing God. The second thing is that this is the first place in the Bible in this chapter where the word worship is used. And, um, you know, he says earlier on in verse 5, I'm going to go up there in the last part and worship. That's another thing which is one of the most misunderstood words in Christendom today. A lot of Christians don't know what grace is. And I'll tell you this, even less Christians know what worship is. I would say that 99.5 or 99.9% of Christians think that worship is what we do on Sunday morning. I shared a meeting, a message on that some time ago, that that was not worship, that was praise. And that's thanksgiving. There are three different words used in the Bible. Thanksgiving, praise and worship. And what we do on Sunday morning... I mean, I'm not disturbed that people call it worship because I understand what they mean. Uh, so, I'm not going to be sticky about that. But what I say is, if you think that's all there is to worship, you, you're going to miss something. So, if you think I worship the Lord because I had a great time singing together and the music was all great, you've missed something. You had a great time praising God, Sure. You had a great time expressing your thanksgiving, but that wasn't worship. No. Worship is mostly done in silence, without any drums or music, and mostly when we are all alone before God. So, and it's connected to the fear of God. You see, and so if people don't know the fear of God, obviously they're not going to be serious about worship either. And when Jesus said that the Father is seeking all over the world 
for those who will worship him in spirit and truth what do you think that verse means do you think the father is looking all over the world for people who have drums and keyboards and well if he was looking for that i think he was pretty disappointed for 19 centuries because most of that is come up only in the 20th century i don't think he was looking for that well, what was he looking for was he looking for people to raise their hands and clap their hands what does it mean when it says god is a spirit and the father seeks all over for those who will worship him in spirit and in truth that's different from the sacrifice of praise the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name that's important but worship is something different so i just want to share something of that with you here is a man who is called the first person in the bible who is called the fearer of god so i presume we can understand something just like abraham is called the father of faith a lot of things we can learn from abraham about faith that when god said he's going to have a son he said amen when god says something we believe it and he got it so he's the father of faith and the bible says even though he was so weak and helpless and his wife was barren he gave glory to god by believing that what god had said god would do not what god had said i would do notice that he believed that what god had said god would do if god's promise to give me victory he will give me victory he will keep me from falling it's not me keeping myself from falling abraham didn't think he could produce a son on his own and i don't ever believe that i can get victory on my own it's he who keeps me from falling it's he who will save me from my sin that's the mistake a lot of people make they are themselves trying to be saved from sin it's like trying to climb out of a thousand foot pit you just can't do it somebody else has to pull you out it's god who gave abraham a son and it's jesus who saves us from sin it's jesus who fills us with the holy spirit so um when abraham is called a fearer of god here are a few things that i saw as i meditated on this chapter and um seven things that i'd like to share with you number 1 one who fears god is one who listens to god notice god tested abraham and god said abraham and and the message bible says uh, yes answered abraham i'm listening i'm listening boy that's great He said that before Samuel said it. Speak Lord. The servant is listening. One who fears God is one who is always ready to listen. It's like God calls me and I drop everything and I say, "Yes." You see that often in somewhere out of the blue God would say, "Abraham," and he drop everything and say, "Yes, Lord." Do you have that attitude? I tell you. I know many a time when I have failed. I'm doing something which I think is very important. Some sometimes even writing a Christian article. And God says, "Stop. Just talk to me for a little while." And I have sometimes said, "Lord, just hang on. Just let me finish this. 10 minutes I'll be over." And the 10 minutes are over and I finish my article and I look around for the Lord he's not there the sense of his presence which was so near 10 minutes earlier 
has gone. And it's taught me that I don't have God at my beck and call. Hey, God, why does it say, seek the Lord when He can be found? Does it mean He can be found anytime? Why does it say, call upon Him when He is near? I tell you, I have learned that lesson by failure. And I say, God, let it never happen again in my life. When you call me by name, I drop everything and I say, Lord, yes, tell me. The most important thing in the world must be dropped. And I tell you, it has practical benefits too. The other day, I was going to do something or read something and again, that voice said, spend a little time with me. So I dropped it. I said, okay. And most of the time when I'm spending time with the Lord, I don't talk. I listen. You know why I listen? For one simple reason, that God is holier than me. When you speak to somebody who is a million times holier than you do, than you are, what do you do? Listen or talk? I've learned through the years to listen. A lot of people when they pray, uh, you know, prayer is like a telephone call. It's like calling up someone and you speak to them for half an hour. This, 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 this. Okay, bye. That's how a lot of people pray to God. They don't hear one single thing. You know, it's such an insult even to speak to an ordinary human being like that. You pick up the phone and keep on talking for half an hour and then uh, put the phone down and say bye. Do you know how many Christians insult God every day? By going through their long prayer lists in one hour, two hours, they say so many things to God or 15 minutes, whatever it is. Amen. They haven't given a chance for God to say anything to them. I gave up that type of praying ages ago. I listen. Because I've learned through the years, even when I was a young man, when I sit in the presence of a godly man, I'll get a lot more by listening to him than by talking to him. So what about when I sit in the presence of God? In, in any case, what information can I give to God which he doesn't know? Can you think of something? What can I tell him? He knows everything. I mean, I tell, it, I tell him so that I get it off my chest, that's all. That's the only reason, not to inform him. Otherwise it will be weighing down on me, I say, Lord, I pass it on to you, finished. But otherwise there's nothing he doesn't know. But I tell you, there are a lot of things I don't know which I can learn if I listen. And so when God said, Abraham, Abraham said, Yes, Lord, I'm listening. That's the first mark of a man who fears God. And I'll tell you this, I never knew how to listen to God when I didn't fear Him. And I can guarantee the less you fear God, the less you listen to Him. You will ask Him for 10,000 things People who don't fear God can ask Him for 10,000 things. But those who fear God ask Him for very little. They listen. And He adds more than they need to them. It's my testimony for 46 years. I've asked God for very little of earthly things. Pretty close to zero. Yes, it's the honest truth. In 46 years I've asked for pretty close to zero earthly things. But He's added many things in abundance to me. 
But I've listened a lot. And I've come to know God so much better by listening than if I did all the talking. Well, many of you have wasted many years talking. Why not spend the rest of your life listening? That's one mark of a man who fears God. Secondly, I want to see here, a man who fears God obeys immediately. The Lord said to him, take now your son, verse 2, and your only son of the land of Moriah. And he didn't tell him when to go. You know, the Lord, Abraham could have banked on that and said, well, God didn't tell me when to go. I've got a lot of important things on tomorrow, day after, but I'll make an appointment to go there next week. No, nothing of the sort. Early in the morning, probably four o'clock, rose up. And God spoke to him at two o'clock. He woke up. Four o'clock in the morning, he was off. I've seen through the years different types of believers, some who are very slow in their obedience. They obey, but they think about it and sometimes they use spiritual language and say we are praying about it. Sounds very spiritual. But what it really means is I don't feel like obeying right now. Um... And I found that people who are very sluggish in obedience remain sluggish all through their life. You know, people who slowly get up and do something. By the time they've finished 50 years of their life as Christians, they've done what a wholehearted Christian has probably done in two years. Imagine waking up in eternity and discovering that in all the 30, 40 years as a believer, all I did was what, about, what should have been done in about one year. When I look at the life of the Apostle Paul and see the fantastic amount he accomplished, even though he was an unconverted man for 30 years and he got converted and came to know Christ only around 30 years of age. Most of us have come to know the Lord much younger. I came to know the Lord when I was 19. Paul came to know the Lord when he was 30. And Paul died about 67, and I'm pretty close to that now. Boy, well, what a lot he accomplished. Even though he was converted long after I was converted in terms of age. There I see how much God can do through a man totally yielded to him. Through one man. I remember hearing, was it Deal Moody perhaps? Somebody said uh, in his presence once when he was a young man, Deal Moody was a great evangelist in America 150 years ago, 120 years ago. And he, somebody said in his presence when he was a young man, the world has yet to see what God can do through a man who is totally surrendered to him. The world has yet to see what God can do through a man who is totally surrendered to him. And Moody listened to that and said, I'm going to be that man. I'm going to be that man who will have no desire or ambition of my own. It's going to be God all the way. And you know, God did a lot through one man. And when I study church history, I find though it's true that the body of Christ is large, there are many believers, 
And though it is God's perfect will that every part of the body should be healthy, strong, that the left hand should do what the left hand should do, the right hand should do what the right hand should do, and the ear and the eye and every part should do what it's supposed to do, in actual fact, it has not happened like that. When I study church history, I find it is certain outstanding individuals through whom God has been able to accomplish His work. That if you remove, say, 20-30 people from Christian history, Christian history would have been very different. I mean, think if you just removed Paul. Paul didn't exist. Or take away some guy like John Wesley. Didn't exist. Or some person like William Booth or Charles Finney. Just few people like this. Or Sarasundar Singh or someone like that. Or Amy Carmichael. Just take them out. They didn't exist. Or Mother Teresa. Someone like that. They're supposing they didn't exist. Just these few people. Can you imagine what a tremendous loss would have been Christianity? 10,000 other Christians couldn't have done what these people did. Because they were wholehearted, radical. And God was able to do mighty things because they were immediate in their obedience. I want to encourage you, my brothers and sisters, when God tells you something, obey immediately. Don't wait don't, I mean, if you're not sure about God's will, by all means, wait any length of time. But once you're sure, don't wait. Get into the habit of immediate obedience. You heard something, do it. So that's the second thing I want you to see about one who fears God is one who obeys God immediately. Barely next morning. You know, you can hear something in a meeting like this. Nobody else hears it. And... Um, that's how it was with Abraham. Nobody else heard. Sarah was sleeping next to him. She didn't hear what God said to Abraham. And the person sitting next to you in a meeting won't hear what God's saying to you. Right now, God's saying something to you and the person sitting next to you does not know what God's saying to you. It may be your wife, husband, brother, sister. It doesn't know what God's saying to you, but you know. It's something God's told you to do. When are you going to do it? If I were you, I'd do it the first thing after the meeting. You got to apologize to somebody? You got to return some money that doesn't belong to you? Don't wait. Fear God, you obey immediately. Number three, it says here, it doesn't actually say, but from the silence, I, you know, some things we see from silence. It says, when Abraham got up early in the morning and went off with his son, I have the feeling that Sarah was still asleep. Can you imagine what would have happened if he had woken up Sarah and said, Sarah, I just want to tell you something. I'm just going to take our son to kill him in a few minutes. <laughs> I think we'd have had a fight there in that house. Because she hadn't heard God. It's not because she was not spiritual, but sometimes our wives haven't heard God. And don't tell them, burden them with things which they can't understand. See, a man who fears God is freed from his attachment to his relatives. That's what I wanted to point out here. A man who fears God is freed from attachment to relatives. There are very few people like that. I've seen a lot of fine Christians. When it comes to the crunch, it's what daddy and mommy says. Oh, well, let me consult my wife. Or, well, you can do that. But Abraham didn't. God had told him something and he didn't want to 
burden his wife with something she wouldn't be able to understand. He didn't want to consult her. I tell you, I mean, if your parents are God-fearing, boy, you certainly should listen to them. If they know the grace of God and they are wholehearted disciples of Jesus. But if they are not, I want to ask, you know, I've seen so many fine young people who seek advice um, and they look very spiritual, but then they place so much value in spiritual matters on the advice of unconverted parents. I can't understand that. You think they are wholehearted believers, but when it comes to marriage, you say, well, my parents' opinion is more important than the opinion of the elders in the church. Fine. I hope your parents are spiritual, more spiritual than the elders in the church. Then it's fine. But otherwise, they're not going to give you the advice which is best for you. And you can miss God's will for all your life. I've seen numerous cases like that. I'm not saying they have unhappy marriages. They just live on God's second best or third best for the rest of their life. Because at some crucial point in their life, they chose to get the advice of some carnal parent or relative. Instead of God or godly men. Well, I'm not asking you to live in regret over the past. I said, just don't do that anymore. Don't mess up the rest of your life. You can't do anything about the past, but you can make sure you don't mess up the rest of your life. Value the opinion of godly people if you ever want to consult somebody. And um, Abraham knew that Sarah wouldn't be able to handle that. She would give her own opinion as a mother, not as a woman of God. And so he said, well, I don't want to get her opinion. I'll just go on and do what God told me to do. And she'll understand later. And that's the way I've sought to do things. I mean, I've taken decisions where my parents were God-fearing, but I didn't consult them about quitting my job or taking baptism. Or God showed me something, I did it. If I sought counsel, I sought the counsel of godly people. I mean, I respect my parents, but I didn't believe that my parents were the most godly people in the whole world. So, to honor your parents does not mean that you have to believe that they are the most godly people in the whole world. They are not. So, when we fear God, we are freed from this human attachment to relatives and friends. And if we have an attachment, it will be to godly people. Then number four, something else I see here is, you know, the Lord told Isaac, told Abraham to go and offer up his son on Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah was a number of miles away, probably 150 miles away. And he had to walk with a donkey and all that wood. Long distance, three days journey. And according to human reason, he could have said, well, Lord, what does it matter whether I offer it there or here? The important thing is you want my son, right? Why trudge all the way to Mount Moriah? I mean, I'll just sacrifice it around the corner here. More convenient. So the fourth thing I want to say is that a man who fears God does not depend on human reasoning. He does not depend on human reasoning, which sounds right. I mean, we know here this main point is that God wanted to detach Abraham from his love, inordinate love for his son. What does it matter whether it's down on Mount Moriah, three days journey away or down around the corner? 
Abraham doesn't question. A man who fears God does not depend on human reason, but on God's word. The Bible says, Proverbs 3, 5, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. Shall I tell you something from that verse? Trust in the Lord is faith. What is one of the greatest enemies of faith from that verse? Human reasoning. One of the greatest enemies of faith is human reasoning. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. That's what Abraham did long before Proverbs 3 was written. He did not lean on his human understanding. He didn't argue with God and say, Lord, why should I do it there? I mean, this is just good enough. There's some things that God says, which according to human reason, it doesn't sort of appeal to us. I mean, when I read the tabernacle, the construction of the tabernacle, that doesn't look like a good building at all. Not a building worthy of Almighty God. And Moses, who had built pyramids in Egypt, um, he does if he, if he was the old 40-year-old Moses, he'd have said, hey, God, leave it to me. I'll tell you how to, I'll make a fantastic tabernacle for you. The only thing missing on that would have been the glory of God, that's all. Because it was not built according to the pattern. But Moses was a broken man by the time he was 80. And he said, God, I'll just do it the way you say. I won't question anything. Some things don't appear right to me. It doesn't matter. A lot of things in scripture, I sometimes wonder, why is it like that? I just accept it. You know, I, I sometimes thought, why did God give the gift of tongues? It just caused such a lot of confusion all over the world. Must have been a very good reason. So I accept it. <laughs> I don't try to use my human reason about anything. A lot of people use human reason and get all types of interpretations on various things. When I fear God, I say, God, your wisdom is greater than mine. There are a lot of things I can't understand. But I bow to your wisdom. And so, there may be things in scripture which you can't understand. Do what God says. I used to wonder why the scriptures give little commands. Small things, you know. I'm not talking about the big things like don't kill, don't commit adultery. But small, small things. I find a lot of Christians, when they come to the small commands of scripture, I say, ah. Oh, that's not so serious. It's not the main thing. I know it's not the main thing. I know it doesn't matter whether it's an... Uh, I know it's not the main thing. Is not whether you offer Isaac on Mount Moriah around the corner. The main thing is to offer Isaac. It's true. But when God says Mount Moriah, we go to Mount Moriah. Even though that's not the main thing. The main thing is to offer Isaac. I agree. So I find a lot of people when they come to the New Testament, just ask yourself, are you reminded right now about something you know scripture says... You should do this or you shouldn't do this. And you say, oh, that's not the main thing. I know it's not the main thing. But I've learned through the years to obey the little commands of scripture. And it has blessed me. You, you know, you've heard me use the illustration of how do you test a child's obedience? Not in the big commandments. When you send a child to school, you don't tell him, now listen, don't murder anybody on your way to school. Don't rob a bank on your way to school. Don't catch some woman and commit adultery with her on the road. And he comes back and says, Dad, I obeyed all your commands. I didn't murder anybody today. I didn't rob any bank on the way. I didn't do any such thing. Is that where you test a child's obedience? Not at all. It's when he's playing cricket out there and it's a very interesting time in the game and um, 
Mommy says, come inside, son. I want you to do an errand for me. That's the time your test is obedience. Most 99% of children, perhaps 100%, will say, just wait, mom. Let me finish this. See, the obe- our obedience to God is not tested in the big commandments. It's tested in the small things. The small teeny-weeny commandments in scripture are the ways by which God is testing you whether you will lean upon your own understanding or obey God's word implicitly. I decided more than 45 years ago to obey God implicitly and I've never changed my mind. I don't force other people to obey God in these things. I say, well, the main, we would emphasize the main things in the church. The small things, I say, okay, I give you freedom. But that freedom, when you take it and you treat God lightly, I'll tell you it will affect your spiritual life. You may not lose your salvation, but you'll certainly have some regret in eternity in heaven. Then number five. He says here to his servants, I want to go up and... He doesn't take his servants up to the top of Mount Moriah. A man who fears God lives before God alone. That's what I want to say here. He lives before God alone. He told his servants in verse 5, You stay here. It's just me and the lad will go up there. We're going to worship. That's why I told you worship is something we do alone before God. We don't have other people watching us. He told all his servants, You stay here. I'm going to worship God. When I worship God, I don't want you fellows around. I'm going to do it all by myself. Alone. A man who fears God lives before God's face alone. He, he's not in for any display. He's not here to show other people, Hey fellas, see what the sacrifice I'm offering to God? Can you see it? No. If he gives money, nobody knows it. If he prays, nobody knows it. If he fasts, nobody knows it. If he sacrifices, nobody knows it. If he goes through sufferings, he doesn't go around looking for human sympathy. He lives before God's face. The man who fears God does everything in secret before God. You know how Jesus emphasized that? He says, your heavenly Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Why is it so many of God's children are not being rewarded openly in their life? Because the Father sees nothing in secret in their life. Everything is before others. I tell you, most of Christendom today and their Christian so-called praise and Christian preaching, it's all before man's face. You know, we're supposed to smile and do things in a nice way for them. Impress people. Very little of living before God's face. And that's one great reason for the shallowness of today's Christianity. So remember this, brothers and sisters. Living before God's face. Number six. The man who fears God gives up everything. When God, when Abraham gave up Isaac. He actually gave up everything. He would have gladly offered a hundred thousand lambs any day. He would have offered up himself when he gave up Isaac. He was giving up someone whom he loved even more than he loved Sarah. He was the darling of his heart, the joy of his life. 
When he gave up Isaac, it was like giving up everything. And the man who fears God is one who is, he doesn't give 10% like they tell you you got to give. That's Old Testament, brother. 10%? No, no, no. Abraham lived long before that. He knew. The people who say, oh, Abraham gave 10% of Melchizedek. So, brothers, we must type. Abraham gave everything to God. He didn't type. He didn't give 10% of Isaac to God. He gave everything. It's all these wrong understandings people have. And that's why they live in the old covenant, defeated lives. But Abraham gave everything. He said, Lord, all that I have is yours. And the wonderful thing is, God didn't take him. God didn't take Isaac. You give everything to God and God says, okay, you can use some of that for yourself. And that's how we use. We don't have to put all our money in the offering box, but we certainly have to recognize that everything we have belongs to God. All that we have. And so when we give him, we're not doing him a favor, we're just giving him what belongs to him. And lastly, the man who fears God is flexible and not rigid. What do I mean by that? That means if God changes his mind and says, okay, don't sacrifice him, he says, fine, I won't sacrifice him. See, some people, there's no flexibility in their life. You see, God said something like this 20 years ago. We've got to do the, keep doing the same thing for the rest of our life, world without end. No. God may say, no, that's enough. You've done that enough, now you do something else. God told um, Joseph to go down to Egypt. He told Jacob and his family to go down to Egypt. And one day he told them to get out of Egypt in Moses' time. God um, told uh, uh, Elijah, go and hide yourself in the wilderness. And then one day he said, show yourself to Ahab. God changes. We must be willing to change. He told Nineveh through Jonah, I'm going to destroy you. When Nineveh repented, he said, I'm not going to destroy you. We're going to accept that. Jonah couldn't accept it. The man who fears God is flexible. He's sensitive to the Spirit. He doesn't say, oh, well, the Spirit did it like that then. He's going to do it like that now. Have you noticed how Jesus healed the sick? He didn't always uh, open blind eyes the same way. Sometimes he said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Sometimes he spat and put some mud on his eyes. And sometimes he just opened it like that. And sometimes he healed him in two stages. Okay, stage one, you see a little bit, you see men like trees. Okay, stage two, you're healed. What does this teach us? Is it because Jesus couldn't do it straight away? It's because Jesus was listening to the Spirit. Man who's listening to the Spirit is flexible. He doesn't see somebody else do it that way, so I do it that way. These are mechanical people who live under the law. They live by rules. The man who fears God is led by the Spirit. God says something, I do it. Here it is, Lord. God says, okay, that's enough. I remember years ago when I was about 23 years old, God said to me, you're not to get married or have any children. I said, fine. And for years, I thought that was for life. But for years and years, now I realized later on that it was only so that I wouldn't accept any proposals that came to me at that time. Another day, God said, get married. I said, fine. I'm thankful I did. Okay, let's pray. (laughs) 